there will be some questions about things that people are genuinely interested in, and that will inspire me to speak a little bit on those topics. So please let me know what you would like to know more about. Absolutely anything. And I know some of you are here for the first time, and this is probably a very unfamiliar kind of, uh, of situation. And believe me, there's no question you have that is not worth asking. So go right ahead. <laughs> Yes. John, could you talk a little bit more about Anatta? And um, I'm wondering if this is something that you can, like I think it's helping me to hear about it intellectually, but I'm wondering if it's something that you can really realize, like it's more of a realization than a concept, you know? Mm -hmm. So can you talk about how to integrate the realization with the intellect? Uh, yes. What the question you've asked actually uh, goes to the very heart of the uh, the teaching of, of the Buddha. Because the purpose of the whole purpose of the practice, the whole purpose of the Buddhist Dharma, is to come to that place where the delusions that we operate under are eliminated. And ignorance, the ignorance that uh, causes us to uh, both to do the things that we do and to experience the suffering that we do is overcome and replaced by wisdom. That wisdom is understanding the way things really are. And uh, the nature of that wisdom is such that it is very counterintuitive. And the heart of it is the... uh, emptiness of the self, anatta. The reason the reason that we experience suffering is that we uh, or, or, and, and when we say suffering in Buddhism, it's not a very good word. Someday I'm going to figure out a better way to express it. The word is dukkha and it means unsatisfactoriness and the suffering that we experience. And life is full of a lot of genuine suffering. There's no question about that. But even apart from those very painful aspects of life that we would label suffering, there is an immense amount of dissatisfaction and disappointment. And this basically is woven into the entire texture of our lives. It is that there's a lot of frustration, disappointment, dissatisfaction, uh, and, and lack of fulfillment. And that can be traced to uh, craving, desire, and aversion, which causes us to do things which increase the suffering of others unnecessarily, and which is actually at the root of our, our own suffering. Uh, the reason that we, uh, that we suffer is that we want things and, and we can't have them or we get them we lose them and so on and so forth. But 
at the root of, uh, to go to a deeper level, at the root of this craving, this desire and aversion, is of course the belief that we are some, we are this separate self, this idea that, you know, and that's what anatta, at, atta is the Pali word corresponding to the Sanskrit word atman, which you might have heard before. And it means uh, soul, self, that part of us that we feel is, is very separately and especially and permanently us. It's the I, the me, mind, the ego, it's all of the attachment that, that we have to that. And that's where all of our desire and aversion comes from, and that's what—that's uh, how all of our suffering comes to be. So, the that very wisdom that leads to awakening is not the intellectual understanding that the self is an illusory mental structure, which it is, but it is that profound realization. It. Uh, it is that realization that is so complete that you no longer believe in your own uh, personality structure and ego structure the way that we normally do. That you, you see it for what it really it is. It, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And it's not about destroying the ego or destroying the self or anything like that. It's seeing it for what it really is. It's a uh, the, the designation of self, uh, of me, of I, is a, a convenient sort of fiction. The idea that that represents some permanent lasting entity is, is the illusion. But that's a very, very deep-seated uh, illusion that we cling to. And uh, understanding intellectually that this is an illusion. You can do that, but it doesn't solve the problem. It helps somewhat. It allows you to look at your circumstances and your behavior and things like that and recognize what the problem is, but it doesn't do anything to resolve the problem. It's when you stop believing in personal self that things really start to change. It's when you're, as I say, this is counterintuitive because Intuition says, I am real. This self, me. I spent my whole life taking care of this self, and it's the most real thing I know. It's the one thing that I can count on, is that it's me. <laughs> yes. Um, and so that's very counterintuitive. And what we're really trying to do is come to that place where our understanding reaches that depth where our intuition intuitive understanding is that that is false. Right? So, that is right at the core. But once you do that, then uh, w- once you reach that level of understanding, that realization, then uh, you don't experience suffering in the same way. And you uh, desire and aversion have no power and force to drive you and to compel you the way they always have before. So you're liberated from that as well. And of course this profoundly affects the way that uh, you behave and the way that you treat other people. So you become a very, basically what you're moving towards is becoming a, a person that is not only free 
of dukkha that actually is experiencing that blissful happiness of complete contentment and fulfillment. Because that's when there is no dukkha, that's what is present. And of becoming a person who is also naturally, spontaneously filled with loving kindness. And so there, uh, this gives life a purpose and meaning that goes beyond anything that uh, otherwise had before. But there's, but so, so what we're really trying to do, you know, there's no, mat, there's no issue of faith in this. The entire Buddhist teaching is one, come and see for yourself. You know, and so this is what the Buddha said in his very first teaching. To, uh, is he said, uh, life is full of this kind of difficulty, but it arises entirely out of craving. And if you can overcome that craving, then you'll be free of suffering. And this is the path that leads to it. And basically, what the path is taking you towards is this wisdom of uh, uh, understanding the way things really are that allows that craving to to disappear. It, it cuts off its source of, of nourishment. So that's why I say it's where, where the whole path is trying to go. And that actually, in practical reality, um, that involves two stages. One is overcoming the belief in the mind-constructed view of self and personality of self, uh, a personality view. And that's a very that's a very profound transition when that occurs. But there is a further uh, there's a further step in the process, which is when that very sense of being, you know, that not that feeling, that sense of being a separate self, also uh, disappears. And what makes this all very difficult to understand is we cling to ourselves, and as a matter of fact, we go to spiritual paths to make ourselves feel better and find ways, you know, we're looking to fulfill that self even more. And so, uh, you know, the, the red warning lights come on, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't want to be told that I don't have a self, you know, I, that's not what I came here for. Um, but, and, and that's where, you know, it's not a question of, of faith that this is so. It's a question of finding out for yourself. Just having enough, the role of faith in Buddhism is to have enough confidence in uh, the Buddha's enlightenment and 2,500 years of countless beings uh, achieving the same awakening following the same path you know, and uh, having trust and confidence in, in doing the work and, and trying for your, and, and trying to find out for yourself. What happens though is when you when you give up the attachment to self, you, you basically give up yourself when you attain the universe. Have you ever heard that phrase before in any other context? What you give up is something that is not only illusory, but the attachment to it has been causing you unhappiness in one form or another all of your life. What you gain is 
inconceivably beyond what uh, you know any kind of satisfaction of that self could be. You literally gain the universe when a Buddha loses that sense of being a separate self, separate from anything else, everything else, then there is what in, uh, uh, in uh, Christianity and other theistic religions would describe as the experience of the divine union. So overcoming self is right at the heart of all of it. But your question was, how do you go from the part of intellectually understanding that, which I think you know we, uh, you've been in discussions where we've talked about. I have. Yeah. It's, a, it's very. Um, I find for me, it's actually the third step is easier than the second step. Is that possible? Uh, where you can, um, when your object, when you become the object of meditation. Yeah. Okay, but for me, my personality is still very uh, le- much less flexible. Yeah. Well, now how you do it, part of how you do it, how, how you accomplish what you ask about, is that in meditation you cultivate these experiences that give you, that are of a more direct nature that give you more of a direct experience of, of the fact that uh, this whole idea of self is just a mental construct and a feeling. And you're saying, yes, there's those meditative experiences where you become uh, one with the meditation object. And so uh, in that sense, there's no longer any sense of being a separate self. It's also a kind of mystical experience that is not at all uncommon. And people who do meditative practice often have this. And that's not in meditation, but they go out there in the world. And the boundary between their self and everything else dissolves. And they feel, they feel that they're just one with everything. And they have this direct experience that the trees and the rocks and the birds are actually in their consciousness that there is just this one stuff or substance within which are all these objects and themselves. And that that's a very important and valuable uh, mystical experience that also helps to, it helps very profoundly to reinforce this understanding. So, so, so yes, you, you have meditative experiences uh, and you may have these other mystical experiences where the sense of a separate self is temporarily uh, weakened and uh, dispelled to the degree that what's really wonderful about that is when that happens, you can appreciate the potential of giving up the self and, and, <laughs> and achieving that kind of oneness. But that's still just a tiny taste. Another kind of meditative experience that we have um, is coming to that state of just being the pure witness. We're just observing what's arising and passing away in our consciousness, no matter 
whether it's thoughts or no matter if it's sensations and other kinds of physical objects or things like that. We're just the completely objective, detached observer, the witness of the unfolding of experience moment by moment. Um, that can also carry over into, uh, uh, into a non-meditative situation as a, a mystical uh, experience. Uh, the, that's called the dualistic mystical experience because there's very much this sense of, of separation. But what's really important about that is that you recognize that all of these things that you're experiencing are just arising and passing away in your stream of consciousness. They're arising and passing away in your mind due to their own causes and conditions and they are empty of any sort of substantial, substantial nature. And this is a somewhat easy, more easily attained experience for some people. As a matter of fact, in general, it's easier to grasp the emptiness of the external world we perceive, both logically and in terms of subjective experience, than it is to grasp the emptiness of ourself. So understanding the emptiness of the seemingly solid external world is another very effective way of bringing us to the point of having a direct realization of this emptiness of self. So there are a lot of, all of these different practices that we do are basically trying to help you solve that particular problem that you have. The first step is just the understanding of that's where you need to go. You need to, you need to uh, recognize that everything is impermanent and constant flux. That both the external objects that you cling to and the sense of self that you cling to are fabrications of the mind and are empty of substantial reality. And then you realize that clinging to things of that nature is inevitably going to be disappointing. So that's, that's what we say having insights in, into the three characteristics of impermanence and emptiness and, and, and dukkha or dissatisfactoriness. So all of these different practices are, are, are through using our mind and our intellect and then through direct experiences that we have in meditation, like the one that you described, but there's, there's many others. You, and this is where you need a teacher. You need somebody to point them out because you can sit down and meditate and not realize the significance of the experiences that you're having. But when you realize the significance of them and you see what they are, then they all start to congeal and come together and that, that deeper intuitive way of viewing the world, of understanding your experience, shifts. And, and, and that's what brings you to that place that you're, you're trying to get to and that we want to get to. Um, yeah. So, in an, uh, <laughs> just, just a brief summary of the entire Dharma there. <laughs> <laughs> So, and just to, uh, something else that I I just want to to stress in that regard is that because there are these many different methods, uh, but they're all taking you to the same place, 
it's very important to understand as clearly as you can where you're trying to go, what your goal is, where, where, where you intend to end up. And then the second thing is whichever method or path that uh, you are offered or exposed to or, or, or choose in one way or another, that you need to get to the point of understanding reasonably well how it works in terms of taking you to that goal and so that you can evaluate its effectiveness for you because there are so many different paths and methods because there are so many different kinds of people and uh, not every method is going to be necessarily the one that works best for you. So uh, but you, you, you on the one hand you could have an experience of a lot of, a lot of frustration and time wasting if you're trying to follow a path that just is not suited to you to, to bring you to this point of realization and understanding. But on the other hand, if you don't give any particular method a chance, if you don't, and, and that doesn't mean you just blindly do it, that's not giving it a chance. You need to understand it. You need to do it in such a way that you begin to understand how this fits in in terms of getting me from here to there so that you can judge whether it's really working for you or not. Then you might determine that uh, you should uh, incorporate some other methods. The other thing is, too, once you kind of understand what you're trying to accomplish and what the obstacles are that, that you need to overcome to attain this wisdom, there's absolutely nothing wrong with simultaneously employing Another, a, a number of different methods that complement each other because you know one method is very much focused in one way but you know it may be helpful to you to supplement that with some other practices that uh, that uh, cover parts of the psychic terrain that are not addressed by the first method how do you tell the difference between a path that doesn't work for you and something that you just don't like? Well, the way that you do that is by under, by understanding why you have the sense of it, it not working and why you have the sense that you don't like it. A path that you don't like is probably not going to work for you. Right, Good so point. if you don't like the path, well, you should th- th- you should try another method. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like them all, well, then uh, you know, then you're going to have to settle for one. But <laughs> what, <laughs> what's at the root <laughs> of, of what we're doing here? No matter which method you follow, you have to go through a process of learning to... uh, There's some things that are 100% in common with every path and that are absolutely indispensable. There is no methodical practice that will lead you to awakening that does include cultivating certain mental abilities 
and applying them in certain ways. So all paths have this in common. And one thing that all paths, all valid paths have in common is that you cultivate the ability to truly examine what is happening in your mind in the present moment and see it without without uh, a lot with a lot of conceptual confusion and uh, judgment and things like that and this is this is this is uh, fully conscious mindful awareness applied to your own mind in the present moment and there's no path that doesn't include that so any path that you take up if it's a valid path will be the very first things it'll be doing is guiding you towards cultivating that kind of mindful awareness and then applying that kind of mindful awareness to your reaction to the path is, is go- that's something that'll come directly out of the out of the instruction. No matter what you do, you're going to have any one of these methods is going to generate sooner or later some degree of uh, resistance. This is called resistance for lack of to to avoid expounding unnecessarily. And so no matter what path you're following, when the resistance arises, you apply your introspective mindful awareness to that resistance to understand its nature. And so that's going to tell you whether the resistance, what is the resistance coming from? Why, why don't you like it? Whatever, what is it that you don't like about it? What's happening in your mind in the moment when you have this experience that uh, I, I don't really want to do this? And if you can do that, if you can examine your own mind with that kind of clarity, then you can come to probably a reasonably good conclusion. The other thing, of course, that you should do is to, uh, if you can, is to consult with somebody who is more experienced than you, a teacher of some kind. Here you have to be careful, because a lot of teachers their response is going to be, you know, if the method you tried and you're having trouble with is theirs, is that, is that you just need to try harder because it's the only right way. Or if they're doing something different, they say, well, no wonder you don't like it because it's no good. The only right way is my way. So, don't do that. so <laughs> you do have to watch out for that a little bit. But. Thank you. Yes? I have a question to something you said earlier. You, um, you, you spoke about um, essence and personal ego and personal mind in, on the same uh, line than soul. And in, like it's all illusion, all perception. And in my own experience, it's like when, I, when I'm in, in, in my personal mind, in my ego, whatever, I, I see the attachment, I see what I need to change. But when I really think I'm dipping into the deep essence of my soul, I can accept, I'm totally calm, I'm totally there. What I'm dipping into it when it's an illusion, the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if we speak in terms of uh, ultimate truths in the, you know, and so in, in order to speak about ultimate truths, we're going to end up making a lot of 
statements that are, on the one hand, they're not going to be, uh, they're going to be intuitively, uh, they're going to be counterintuitive because they go against our relative way of viewing things. And the other thing is that ultimate truth goes beyond conception and it goes beyond the, our dualistic way of perceiving things. And so it's difficult to understand. And as a matter of fact, any statement is conceptual. And all, since our thinking is naturally and spontaneously dualistic, we're going to take a statement about something that's non-conceptual and non-dualistic, and we're immediately going to translate it into conceptual and dualistic terms. So this is the problem. But the ultimate truth, which you'll have to take on a kind of faith or trust and come and see for yourself, is that all experienced phenomena are empty of a self-existent nature of being the way we experience them. And that includes that experience of your own essence. Because unless we have to, okay, we can qualify this. Somebody who is experiencing the non-dualistic emptiness of all formations may subsequently because it is the it, it, it is a, a sort of absolute truth that they have experienced they may afterwards say to someone that I experience my own true essence which would be a poor choice of words because it's not and own, there's not a my and there's not an own in it if they experience the real thing. But to the extent that you're, they, that this experience that you have is still in the nature of a subject-object duality and to the degree that in the experience of it there is still a separation between whatever is the content of that experience and the experience of that experience and the rest of the world and other people, then there's another kind of false duality present. So you can have a wonderful experience of your own mind through the stilling of conceptualization and through the elimination of all of that uh, emotional noise and, and as a matter of fact, med the process of meditation is filled with absolutely amazing experiences that we have. Um, and they're good because we enjoy them when they happen. And they also encourage us to continue practicing. And since all of them bring us in one way or another closer to the, the wisdom and the truth we're trying to pursue, every one of these meditative experiences uh, is actually helpful to us on our path, provided that we don't misunderstand it and attach to it. Awakening is not an experience. It is absolutely not an experience. Awakening, enlightenment, 
liberation, whatever you want to call it, this goal that we're going to. Some people, not all, will have a significant marker event that happened at 12.19 p.m. on August the 14th, blah, blah, blah. But not everybody does. And there are many different experiences you can have that can just be incredibly wonderful, but they are not awakening. They are not enlightenment. Awakening, enlightenment, the goal of the path, is a permanent condition or state or it's a permanent state of being. It's not an experience that comes and goes. It may begin with an a quote experience, but the experience that it begins with is even in a sense a non experience. But experiences are, are are not the essence of it. But in your meditation, when you have profound, wonderful experiences, which you know, you didn't give me any detail, but I sense that it's one of those. Um, take what it has to teach you, but uh, don't mistake it for for being an experience of the uh, of an ultimate nature, and the part uh, and the one part of this that's a, a caveat is that to the degree that it is uh, that it, that there is still a perception of any kind of selfhood or experiencer. Uh, or separateness, that then it's not it's not the uh, it's not the ultimate truth that we're talking about. If it were the ultimate truth that we're talking about, it would change the way your brain, your mind works, and subsequently, you would find that you can no longer be deceived by the apparent reality of your mind's structures, including your mind's view of your own personality. So that's the other way of telling whether when you, you know, you, if, if you have an experience like this, uh, is, is this the ultimate truth or is this just another relative truth that's bringing me closer to the ultimate truth? Does it permanently change the way that you that your mind works in, in the future? That would not have that question uh, well, no, you would still have questions. It still has a lot of questions because that's that's the other thing is that uh, uh, you can you can have an experience of ultimate truth that permanently changes you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it completely changes you. As a matter of fact, it won't completely change you, and there'll still be work to do. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact. Uh, the process of awakening may, you know, it just goes on and on. So <laughs> it's, it's not a question of, oh, I'm awake now, that's it, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more to do. Thank you. Any other uh, questions or comments on this topic? See, you see, this is a topic, this is a question that is only applicable to very serious people pursuing a spiritual path because it, it, it is so much the opposite of what our normal way of thinking compels us to. We want a way to make 
ourself, we want to discover that our self is permanent and perfect and holy and all this other stuff is just, you know, other stuff. And we want to discover that the self that we feel like we are is, uh, is somehow going to be eternal and immortal and, and everything else. So you have to be serious about the path to even be willing to entertain a discussion on this topic. But the fact is that you've got to get rid of this impermanent, fabricated, uh, unsatisfactory, uh, uh, and empty self first before you can realize that which is just the opposite, permanent, unconditioned, and uh, not subject to birth and death. Yep. What are your thoughts about practices that visualize and try to see yourself as the divine or the mm-hmm. deity or the God? How do you feel about those practices? Is there a correct way to do it where you're not uh, getting attached to another sense of self, which is considered divine? Uh, yes, that, as a matter of fact, that's one of the major dangers of those practices is that uh, you fabricate a new sense of self and become attached to it. And so, um, when, when, you know, if, if we, if uh, you take, for example, Jason Kappa's writings on the stages of the path and use that as a uh, uh, a guide to the application of these practices. What what he says, and what I believe uh, all of the teachers in the Vajrayana tradition uh, teach, is that that prior to doing those kinds of visualizations effectively. You know, in in the sense of the the true practice of tantra, you have to already realize this first step of a non-attachment to personal self. You've got to see that the self that you're normally attached to is an illusion. Otherwise, you are at tremendous risk of just substituting your ordinary view of self with a newly fabricated more grandiose and more complex sense of self. You have to understand uh, the, the emptiness of yourself. And the problem here is that you can understand the emptiness of everything else. And if you understand the e- emptiness of all observed phenomena, but you have not discovered the emptiness of self, and then you engage in this kind of practice, uh, the emptiness of other is going to justify in your mind all of this attachment to the, the fabricated self. So uh, every path, as I said earlier, every path, including the paths that involve these kinds of tantric visualizations, they begin with cultivating those particular mental faculties uh, that for short we can call concentration and mindful awareness and the application of proper application of them so that you understand uh, things as they 
truly are, and you develop that intuitive understanding. So, uh, on the in, in the uh, tantric system, you're you're trying to take a shortcut to becoming uh, a samasambuddha, a fully enlightened being. Uh, in other words, you're trying to to not What we're told in the uh, uh, in the sutras is that to become a samasambuddha like Shakyamuni, that the way is to spend uh, uh, countless lifetimes, eons and eons, uh, not being fully enlightened and building merit and and wisdom, so that you can at some point be born as a being that who will become a Samasambuddha and, and then be able to liberate all beings. And so the tantric practice is a shortcut to that. It's not a shortcut to the beginning of the path. It's not a shortcut to what's called stream entry or satapana or darsana marga, as you might know the term from, uh, from the Sanskrit. It's not a shortcut to realizing the true emptiness of not just phenomenon, but of self. So within the tantric path, uh, and I don't know a lot of the details of it, it's not something that's my specialty, but I understand that within the tantric path, as it's taught, are the methods to the, that are very similar to what any other path uses to bring you to these, this direct realization, the stream entry point, the, the Sotapana, the Darsana Marga. And that the remainder of the tantric path is then trying to leapfrog you past all these eons and eons. But it's not a short path cut to that. You want to get to that first. We all want to we all want to achieve this first stage of, uh, of enlightenment, which if you are a bodhisattva, a declared bodhisattva in the Mahayana system, it would be the first bodhisattva bhumi that you're talking about, this corresponds to. So there is, there is this uh, danger, as you obviously have realized yourself, there is this very great danger of being permanently trapped in the delusion of your own attachment to your own self-nature that is reinforced so strongly by your tantric practice that you know it may be almost impossible for you to break through that. Yes? John, as we go through the different stages of realization and releasing um, self and the personality and such. And we retrain the thought processes in the mind and we, we begin to recognize the oneness of all beings in the universe. And we feel that oneness.
and we we're, we're moving forward, and then something happens uh, in the physical realm or in the physical being that is uh, hurtful or stressful, that brings back old patterns and old attachments. Mm-hmm. Is it? the best practice to simply recognize that and then let it go? Yes. <clears throat> or, I mean, is it, and how, how do we get beyond those old feelings mm-hmm. as far as that is concerned? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, the best practice is to recognize it. And when we say let it go, uh, this this let it go is it's not it, letting go is not pushing away letting go is not denying and rejecting letting go is saying aha yes that is there and seeing it for what it is seeing it in its unwholesome nature seeing it uh, in, in terms of uh, the fact that it's there because uh, it was established through past thoughts and actions and intentions and that it has yet to be purified from your mind stream. But you don't blame yourself for it. You don't reject it. But uh, you have neither positive nor negative attachments. Definitely you don't want it. But you're also not going to go into a state of, of rejecting and aversion and, and self-blame or anything else because it's there. That's the letting go part of it. Seeing it, recognizing it when it comes up, and it's very important to recognize the associated feelings that come up uh, with, if there's a pattern of behavior, uh, it has uh, its own constellation of, of feelings and, and, and probably other subtle beliefs that are connected with it the more clearly you can see and recognize those for what they are, the more quickly you will be able to overcome and uh, uh, be, be free of that. Uh, it's, an, it's an ongoing process. Uh, it's a very important part of the practice. It's an indispensable part of the practice is to be mindful of the unwholesome aspects of uh, your own personality and how they manifest and to clearly see the, their problematic nature. What you do is you allow the mindful investigation of that to do all the work so that you're not trying to destroy them or drive them away or anything else. You're allowing a mindful investigation of them to ultimately uh, eliminate them which it will do. Is, did I get off track or did I stay no, with where no, you were? You yeah. So a person can be doing this kind of practice and you know feel like they're doing wonderfully well and then the right circumstances come up and it will trigger the strong resurgence of some mental, mental pattern that, that they thought that they had become free of. And that's not a cause for disappointment and doubt. What it is, it, it, it's an 
opportunity to uh, to do the same kind of work that you've already done, but now at a much much deeper level. You know, you, you, you've trimmed all the easy branches off, and now you're going for the for the, the trunk. Uh, and the reason I use that simile is that to permanently eliminate these things from your mind, you actually have to destroy the root. And, and that's what we were talking about earlier, is the process of destroying the root. You can transform yourself and your life through working on consciously on these personality characteristics. Basically, we would say, what you're doing is you're overcoming your old bad karma and you're creating a whole lot of new good karma, and that new good karma makes you into a better person in better circumstances. But you're still functioning in the realm of karma. So that's why ultimately you want to keep your objective on cutting the root of these things. Because once the root is cut, then also you don't have to, uh, the, 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 the process of, of trimming away all of this stuff otherwise might be endless you know, as, as it arises. But when you cut the root, you don't have to do it that way anymore. That's so does that entail intense self-reflection? Uh, I wouldn't use the word route? intense. It, it, it entails continuous, by self-reflection you mean observing what's going on in your own mind? Right, and to find that root yeah. to, yes. to locate the, the trunk, the yes. root of, of that behavior. Continuous self-observation. Waking up and, and you know, going through your life asleep uh, are two uh, opposing things. So if you want to wake up, you've got to work on staying awake. And staying awake means that it, the intensity will vary. You know, you do a, you do a, a meditation retreat and the stuff you do might be very intense. Or certain circumstances arise in your life, they might be very intense. A lot of the times, though, intensity isn't going to be the right word to describe it. What's really important is the continuity of it. Being mindful all of the time, you know, or, and of course, you start out, it's like meditation. You start out and you're only aware of the meditation object for short periods and you're forgetting it the rest. It's the same thing with practicing this introspective mindfulness. You know, uh, you start off and you, you only experience it every now and then, and the rest of the time you forget and go back to sleep. But as you continue to practice, it starts to become more and more continuous, and that's where you want to go with it. And that's, that's where the resolution of the kind of thing you talked about, things will keep, as long as they're there and as long as there's triggers, sooner or later these things will come up. And so if you're in that place of mindfulness, you see them when they come up, you recognize them for what they are. And you and you do let them go. So for Barbara and George and I can't remember your name. Dana. Sorry, Dana. Jana. Dana. 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 That's right, Dana. Yeah, I have a terrible memory for names, so please forgive me. <laughs> uh, I'm a little concerned. This whole discussion might. I don't know if it, that you can relate to it, or if it's alien to you, or you can relate to it. How about you, Barbara? Oh, wonderful. Okay, good. And George? You okay with it, or? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I, 
Yes, I was just wondering if this discussion, have you, have you, are, are you feeling lost in this discussion? No, we're having? no, it was, it was a little bit deep, see? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, see, because to, to know the ultimate truth or the reality, must pass this life. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of them cannot shift here, but must work in that direction. Okay, well, I, I just, I, I don't want to leave you feeling like, what am I doing here? What did I get myself no, into? No, I know. <laughs> no, but perfect. See, explain, explain the, a little bit in detail. <laughs> because, because uh, I try, I try uh, the, to achieve, uh, to make work there, like uh, to, to speed the time. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's possible a terrible, but after that, there is a lot of obstacles, how I expect, a lot of things. Because we must, we must check everything. If not, uh, only to receive <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right there's a lot of the, the onus is on us to do the work that's right yeah. uh, have you meditated before George? I am a, I am beginner here I, med- I can meditate uh, on the candlelight I have I'm not sure to tell you I, after I am at the concentration <laughs> Mm-hmm. If I, I think if I can stop the mind at the point to obey, mm-hmm. from, I don't know if it's difficult even to, to explain even what is mind. Yeah. Eh? And after that, uh, we can we can make work to direct and 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 where we would like to mm-hmm. to, to take it. Eh? This mind uh, it is a disaster. <laughs> Jump, what he like? That's right. To so much control. It is the first point. What meditation with the mind? I go away, and after that, I I realize I'm not there. And I I go to this direction, concentration. When I stabilize it, I, 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 I can tell you more things. Okay, well, we're going to meditate here for about 45 minutes, so <coughs> uh, I, I think you'll probably do fine. Uh, Barbara, have you meditated before? Yes. Yes, you have. And uh, Dana? Great. So, uh, so uh, <coughs> the practice that I like to do, George, is to meditate on the sensations produced by the breath as it goes in and out of the body. Yeah. yeah so it'll be very similar to meditating on uh, a candle in that you want to continuously be aware of those sensations. And then just let whatever else happens, happen. Stay completely relaxed physically and mentally. Just try to uh, be continuously aware of those sensations and just okay. notice whatever happens. Just breathing in a completely relaxed and natural way. Yeah. So. so you want to take a little stretch? Stretch bathroom break? Yeah. Stretch? Oh, yes, a stretch. Yeah, okay. <laughs>